What is the main pillar of the Protestant Reformation, and does it have any prophetic significance for us today? We'll explore those questions and more today in episode 32 of Adventology entitled, Revelations to Witnesses. Welcome to Adventology, the podcast dedicated to helping you find answers to the big questions of life so that you can live a life of influence that ultimately impacts the world for eternity. Each week, we will explore a different chapter in the story of humanity that centers around Jesus Christ and culminates at His second coming. Whether you know Jesus already or are simply curious about what the Bible has to say about the end of the world, this podcast has something for you. Here now is the host of Adventology, Travis Walker. Have you ever wondered why there are so many different Christian denominations? I know I have. I mean, you just have to get in the car and start driving around town, and right away you'll notice different churches with different names standing, sometimes side by side with one another. Some of the most common denominations include the Roman Catholic Church, branches of the Eastern Orthodox Church, and Protestant branches including the Lutheran Church, the Episcopal or Anglican Church, Beyond those, you will find different varieties of Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, and Pentecostal churches. And then you get into your smaller denominations, like the one I'm a part of, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And finally, an endless number of non-denominational churches. In fact, some have estimated that there are over 33,000 denominations made up of over 2 billion Christians around the world today. Now, I'm not sure if anyone can really measure these numbers with any degree of absolute certainty, but the point is clear. Unified Christianity is a thing of the past. How did this happen? How did one book, the Bible, that itself has remained remarkably unchanged, produce so much confusion? Of course, as is usually the case, the answer is found in history. Because if you go back 2,000 years, there was only one church that was organized by Jesus and the original 12 disciples. And if you go back as recent as 500 years ago, there was only two organized churches in the world, the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox. So what happened 500 years ago? Well, on October 31, 1517, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed what later became to be known as the 95 Theses to the front of his hometown church in Wittenberg. These 95 Theses were soon reprinted and disseminated all over Western Europe, sparking a protest movement concerning the abuses of the church that eventually resulted in this power's deadly wound as described in Revelation 13. Those who opposed the abuses of the medieval church eventually became known as Protestants, as we mentioned earlier. And essentially, Protestants at the time of Luther staked their protest on three main pillars. Sola Scriptura, which simply means the Bible and the Bible only. Sola Fida, meaning by faith alone. And Sola Gratias, by grace alone. Now, we have discussed these subjects at length in previous episodes of Adventology, but today I want to come back around and take another look at the importance of the cardinal principle of the Reformation, sola scriptura, 
the Bible and the Bible alone. You see, because on our last episode entitled The Rise of Antichrist, we were able to identify the organized medieval church as the Antichrist beast the Bible warned us about in Revelation 13 and Daniel 7, a church who derived its primary authority from traditions of men rather than the Word of God. Of course, the Bible in Daniel chapter 7 predicted it would have eyes like the eyes of a man and that it would think to change times and laws of God and persecute those who challenged her authority to do so. Now, this is exactly what happened during the Dark Ages all throughout Europe. The common man was not allowed to own a Bible, much less read it. It was not written or read in the common language of the people. Thus, all were dependent on the priest to read and interpret what the Bible said. Salvation was connected to absolute obedience to whatever the church said you had to do, and those who questioned the church's authority either were tortured or killed. Not only was the Bible restricted, but the Bible was changed as well, particularly the Ten Commandments. The second commandment forbidding idol worship was removed, and to make up for it, the Tenth Commandment concerning coveting was divided into two. But that wasn't all. The Fourth Commandment was changed as well, from commanding the observance of the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, to Sunday, the first day of the week. We talked quite a bit about that in episodes 4 through 6, episode 13, and episode 15. So I encourage you to check those out if you haven't already. Interesting, both Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 predicted that the reign of the Antichrist would last three and a half years or 42 months, which both add up to 1260 days. And in Bible prophecy, a day always stands for a year. So for 1260 years, the Bible predicted this Antichrist power would reign in Europe. And so it did. Of course, according to Daniel 7, this reign could only begin after the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, which happened in 476 AD. And sure enough, Beginning in 538, the Church of Rome begins her unobstructed rule in the place of the Roman Empire. The Pope had now taken the place of the Caesar. The government had changed, but the power structure had not. It is in this context that we find a parallel prophecy to the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. Let's turn now to Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have powers over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. 
So just who are these mysterious witnesses? There are several clues in these verses that help us identify them. However, let's begin with verses 1 and 2. When the revelator was given a rod to measure the temple, the altar, and those that worship here, we find the language of judgment happening among God's people. During this time period, 42 months or 1260 days, God would be doing a work of separating or sifting the faithful from the unfaithful, the true church from the false. The true church, or the woman described in Revelation 12, would go into hiding and seek shelter in the wilderness from persecution while preserving the light and truth of the gospel, while the Antichrist church would hunt her down and seek to wipe her out. We'll develop this thought a little bit more later on. So with that said, let's begin looking at the clues provided in the passage so that we can identify who exactly these two witnesses are. Notice that the two witnesses were given authority, which of course is a reference to divine infusion. This authority did not come from man, but from God himself. Notice they prophesy for 1260 years, which corresponds with the reign of the Antichrist. And they were clothed in sackcloth, signifying mourning over the condition of the church. And the two olive trees and two lampstands are used to identify that these lamps are burning with an unlimited supply of oil. Also, there is a judgment declared upon those who would harm them. And we see that the idea that they could prevent rain from falling or that they could strike the earth with plagues are references to Elijah and Moses. Of course, Elijah prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain. And Moses, of course, was responsible for the plagues that fell upon Egypt. Now, this is important. It is also worth noting that when Christ was transfigured on the mountain in the presence of Peter, James, and John, who was there on the mountain with him, witnessing to Christ's divinity? Moses and Elijah. But of course, we know Revelation 11, like the whole book, is symbolic. So the next question we have to ask ourselves is, what could Moses and Elijah together symbolically represent? When Jesus was raised from the dead, before revealing himself to the believers on the road to Emmaus, do you remember what he said? It says here in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going to go further, but they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Moses and the prophets, otherwise referred to as the law and the prophets in the New Testament, were simply a reference to the entirety of the Holy Scriptures. Those two witnesses simply represented the Bible, the Word of God, sola scriptura. Although it was outlawed from the mainstream church, it was preserved in the underground church. It was, in fact, the rediscovery of the Word of God that lit the fire of the Reformation that we talked about earlier, especially when it was printed and translated into the common languages of the day. 
the Antichrist tried to prevent the two witnesses from completing their mission by banning and burning the word of God. And in doing so, of course, the beast was only heaping judgment upon himself, according to the prophecy. The prophecy predicted that eventually the medieval church's reign over Europe would come to an end and it would receive the deadly wound described in Revelation 13. But what would happen to the two witnesses? Let's keep reading. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lay in the street of that great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies there three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in the graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Revelation 11, 7 through 12. You see, as the Protestant Reformation that began with Luther's 95 Theses swept over Europe and eventually North America, not everyone welcomed the Reformed faith. In fact, even at Protestantism's highest point in its march across Europe, most countries resisted the influence. While the Reformers were very successful in Germany, Scandinavia, and the British Isles, it struggled to move south and east. Violent counter-reformatory movements sparked up everywhere, led by a new order of Catholic priests called the Society of Jesus, or Jesuits for short. The sole purpose of the order's existence was to root out Protestantism and reestablish papal supremacy. In predominantly Catholic countries, they succeeded in defending the invasion through the reinstallation of the dreaded Inquisition. However, in countries that were neutral or friendly to the Protestant Reformation, the Society of Jesus took on a more behind-the-scenes approach to gain its influence. Perhaps the greatest victory of the Jesuit order against the spread of Protestantism happened in the country of France in 1572 when they, along with the mother of King Charles IX, succeeded in convincing him to kill a group of Huguenot leaders that quickly spread to a general slaughter of Protestants throughout Paris. Lasting several weeks, the massacre expanded outward to other urban areas and countryside, taking the lives of an estimated 70,000 men, women, and children. It has ever since gone down in infamy as the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre. The massacre succeeded in crippling the Protestant movements in France, preventing it from becoming an influential power even to this day. Back in Rome, though, Pope Gregory VIII was so happy with the news that he had a gold coin struck in the massacre's honor and ironically designated September 11 as an annual day to commemorate the event. Needless to say, the massacre was an event that delighted some, but for the most part horrified the rest of the world. However, what the papacy celebrated initially as its greatest victory actually resulted in sowing the seeds of its greatest defeat. While the Jesuit priests 
in it had been successful in uniting the people to resist and overcome the progress of the Protestant Reformation in France, it did not come without moral consequences. The law of sowing and reaping not only applies to us as individuals, but it also applies to nations. Without a moral compass over time, the unchecked abuse of power by the church and monarchy sowed the seeds of contempt and revolution among the common people toward both institutions in tandem. By the 1790s, the French Revolution, otherwise known as the Reign of Terror, was in full effect. What was the French Revolution remembered for? Her rejection of God and her embrace of licentiousness, the two sins of Egypt and Sodom. God was declared dead and the goddess of reason was worshipped in his place. All moral restraint was removed. The seven-day week was replaced with a ten-day week. Royalty, priests, and noblemen alike were all sent to the guillotine. Chaos ruled and it was believed that Christianity, both the false and true versions of it, along with the Bible, had been put to death. For three and a half days, the prophecy predicted the death of the two witnesses and for three and a half literal years, beginning in November of 1793 and ending in the spring of 1797, the French Revolution seemed to have wiped the God of the Bible out of the consciousness of the country. But in the end, instead of being a death blow to the spread of the gospel, it only ended up leading to the complete overthrow of the political power of the papacy in France and eventually the world. When soon after the revelation's completion in 1798, the French general Berthier marched an army of soldiers to the Vatican and captured and imprisoned the Pope until his death, thus ending the Roman Church's formal political power. This was the beast's deadly wound described in Revelation 13. And what became of the word of God according to the prophecy? Just as Satan received his death sentence after the death of Christ, the word made flesh, who was immediately resurrected to heaven, so we see the beast received his deadly wound immediately after the two witnesses, the word of God, are put to death, and then are symbolically resurrected to heaven. So what does this mean? How could the word of God be put to death and then resurrected to heaven? No longer would the dragon or the beast have power to restrict the spread of the word of God around the world. Before 1798, the word of God for the most part, had been translated in the languages of the countries that have embraced the Reformation. Afterward, though, the British and American Bible societies were formed that resulted over the next century in the Bible being translated into nearly every language of the world. After the French and American revolutions, not only did the papacy fall, but monarchies all over the world began to topple and be replaced by free societies that allowed the freedom of religion to flourish. Not only do we see a resurrection of the Bible after 1798, but we also see an unsealing of the book of Daniel. If you remember Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, it says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. This text refers to an increase in Bible knowledge in the last days that is made possible by the free distribution of the word of God to the common man in the common language. Could 1798 be the start date for the time of the end? If so, then what does that mean for us today? 222 years is a long time to be living during the time of the end. What significance does it have for us today? 
Does the Reformation that started with Martin Luther 500 years ago still have relevance for us today? Could the Bible and the Bible only, sola scriptura, still be at the heart of the great controversy as we near the second coming of Jesus? It is true that we still live in a time of religious freedom, but how much longer will this freedom last? We will answer these questions and more in our coming episodes. Unfortunately, though, the Bible says that one day the deadly wound of the beast is going to be healed and the world is going to return to policies similar to that of the medieval church during the Dark Ages when it comes to the Bible and religious liberty. Revelation 13 verses 3 and 4 tells us, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and the deadly wound was healed. All the world marveled and followed the beast, so they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? This day is coming sooner than you think. Are you ready? To stand in the last day, we will have to have the spirit of the reformers like Martin Luther, who when brought before the religious and political authorities of his day to answer for the position he had taken against the church said this, Since your most serene majesty and your high mightiness require from me a clear, simple, and precise answer, I will give you one, and it is this, I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or the council because it is clear as the day that they have frequently erred and contradicted each other. Unless, therefore, I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by the clearest reasoning, and unless they thus render my conscience bound by the Word of God, I cannot and will not retract, for it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Is your conscience bound by the Word of God? It is only possible if we spend time every day studying it. Eternity alone will reveal how many people shed their blood so that you and I could both have the opportunity and freedom to acquaint ourselves with what the Bible says. The Apostle Peter said it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice in which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have this prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter here is referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. But what he doesn't mention here is that this is where he also saw Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus, two witnesses. Just as the two witnesses pointed to Jesus then, through the pages of the Bible, they are pointing to Jesus today. And not only that, but the two witnesses ultimately represent two groups of people who will be saved in the end. Moses represents those who die in the hope of the resurrection of the saints. And Elijah represents the last generation of believers who live to see the hope fulfilled in their own lifetime. 
Thus, not only do they live on the pages of the Bible, but more importantly, in the hearts of God's people today who have fortified their minds with the Word of God. Jesus said it best, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Won't you choose to be a witness for Jesus today? Won't you embrace the great Protestant principle of sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible alone in all areas of your life? Thanks for listening to this episode of Adventology. Our goal in this podcast is for you to be ready for Jesus. And the best way to be ready for Jesus is to spend time getting to know him. Knowing Jesus is everything. And that is why we spent the time today studying the Reformation and the centrality of the Bible. But don't just take my word for it. Study it out for yourself. And for a hands-on experience, I encourage you to check out our website, adventology.com, where you can get a transcript of today's episode along with any of the previous episodes we've already published. Also, if you've been blessed by this podcast, share it with a friend. Or better yet, leave a rating or review from wherever you downloaded this podcast from. You can also let me know personally how you've enjoyed the episode by connecting with me on Facebook or Twitter. Seriously, I would love to hear from you. All right, I enjoyed our time together again today, and I look forward to seeing you back here on our next episode of Adventology. In the meantime, Maranatha. Maranatha.